This is a news update on University of Portsmouth Research, brought to you by Life Solved. I'm Sophie Wagstaff, I'm from the university's media team, and today I'm with Dr. Orr Grauer, who's from the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation. Orr has been working on three programmes on the Hubble Space Telescope, and today I'm going to talk to him to find out more. Thanks for talking to me today. Um, I'd love to know a bit more about the Hubble Space Telescope. I know nothing, so actually my first question is, what exactly is it? The Hubble Space Telescope is a telescope in space. It orbits around Earth. It was launched by NASA together with ESA, the European Space Agency, back in 1990 and has been in operation ever since. So it's more than 30 years old. It's a relatively small telescope. It has a mirror with a diameter of 2.4 meters which for telescopes on the ground here on Earth would be considered relatively small. But in space, it's a completely different story. The Hubble's images are much sharper than what we could get down here on Earth. And because they're much sharper, even with a smaller mirror, we can still get very deep images. Well, when I say something is deep, I mean that I can see very faint objects that I would otherwise not be able to see down on the ground. The Hubble Space Telescope is mostly an optical telescope. It can also pick up a bit of ultraviolet light and some near-infrared light as well. Oh, is it the first space telescope? Or were there, were there others before... There were other space telescopes before the Hubble. The Hubble Space Telescope belongs to a generation of space telescopes called the Great Observatories, which were launched in 1990. And th this was a raft of four telescopes, if I remember correctly. Chandra was an X-ray telescope. The Compton Observatory operated in gamma rays. There was a fourth one, which was an infrared telescope. And these were all launched pretty much at, at the same time to gather as much light in as many wavelengths as we could. Ground-based telescopes can't see anything in X-rays or UV or gamma rays or far infrared. So this was a concentrated effort to overcome this limitation of the atmosphere. The Hubble Space Telescope and the Chandra Space Telescope are still in operation. So if it's been in operation or for the last like 30 years, there must be a huge amount of data then that's been recorded and studied. Yes, that's right. The Hubble is one of our most successful telescopes so far. Anyone can use it. Anyone from the astrophysical community. In fact, anyone at all. You have to submit a proposal there's a regular deadline once a year, and then you're judged by a panel of other astronomers, and they judge it according to how interesting the science sounds, how doable your observations are, how important the observations are to your field and to astrophysics as a whole. Then only a very small fraction of those are selected and go on to actually be scheduled on the telescope. To begin with, usually those data are proprietary. 
meaning they belong only to the, the person who proposed to take them. But after a set amount of time, usually between half a year and a year, those data become public. And then anyone can access them. So you can go online onto the Hubble Space Telescope archive, which is called MAST, and you can search for your favorite objects, the Whirlpool Galaxy or Kepler Supernova Remnant, say, and you'll get a very long list of files that you can download in different wavelengths from different instruments taken at different times. And then you can do with them whatever you want. Now, because the Hubble Space Telescope has been in operation for all this time, it's also changed over time. There have been several space shuttle missions that were launched to make repairs to the telescope and to switch out instruments. So Whitefield Camera 3, for example, can take UV, optical, and near-infrared images. Now, sadly, as far as I know, no other missions are planned to keep upgrading the Hubble Space Telescope. So it's aging, and one day something will happen and it will die. Will it, will it just be destroyed or will it just keep kind of circling forevermore? Nothing can circle around the Earth forever. Because of drag, anything you have up in orbit will one day crash down through the atmosphere. So unfortunately, at some stage, the Hubble Space Telescope will have to be deorbited, which means that it will be made to crash through the atmosphere and into one of the oceans in, in a controlled manner. I, I wish we could, we could bring it back. It still is such an amazing and successful observatory. It's caught the public's imagination like no other telescope has. The color images we make are so beautiful. Those are the images that everyone knows. Fortunately, the astrophysics community has been aware of this for a long time. And hopefully, on December 22nd, we'll be launching the James Webb Space Telescope, which in time will come to replace the Hubble Space Telescope. And that's going to be a larger telescope with a mirror with a diameter of six and a half meters as opposed to Hubble's 2.4 meters. And it's going to operate mainly in the infrared so that we can see farther back in cosmic time. The older an object is, the more time light from that object takes to reach us the more time the universe has had to expand over that time. And so the light from that object gets redshifted, which, just as it sounds, means that it, it becomes redder. And so in order for us to see that, we need to be able to see redder and redder forms of light. And so that takes us from the optical into the infrared. And so with the James Webb Space Telescope, we're hoping to be able to see signs of the first galaxies and maybe even the explosions of the first stars. So we'll see. Fingers crossed that the launch goes as planned and that the telescope begins operations as planned. 
will you have to apply to use that telescope in the same way that you applied for the Hubble? Yes, exactly. And I know, or you talked a bit then about how you've obviously applied for observing time on the Hubble Space Telescope and you've been hugely successful. I know, is it three programmes there you said you've worked on? You've, you've managed to have three sort of successful applications. Three since I joined the university. Okay. And eight in total. Oh, wow, my goodness. But that's eight out of 19 attempts. In every proposal, you have to advocate for your science and your observations. I've been using the Hubble Space Telescope for the last six years to observe supernovae, the explosions of stars, hundreds to thousands of days after they explode. We've made one discovery after another. And so there's a compelling case to keep observing these supernovae at these very late times in order to see what other surprises they hold in store. And oh, my next question, it's a really sort of basic one, but as a kind of non-astronomer, how do you actually access the observing time? So you don't touch the telescope. I, I'm very happy that I don't have to touch the telescope. I'm sure that if I did, it would crash. There's an institute called the Space Telescope Science Institute. It's based at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And it's staffed with astronomers whose main goal is to operate the telescope. So they are experts at everything to do with the Hubble Space Telescope and now with the James Webb Space Telescope and the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is also being designed. If you get time, you are then asked to submit a second type of proposal called the Phase 2 proposal, where you plan out your observations. And you say, I want this instrument with this filter, this amount of time, and a few other things that go into that. That goes to Space Telescope Science Institute, SDSCI, and they go over it. They, they talk with you. They make suggestions on how to improve your observing program. And then they schedule it and they upload the commands onto the space telescope. Oh, wow. So the, there's three sort of programs that you've been working on. What discoveries have you made? One of them just finished yesterday. I got the final observations yesterday. And the other two are completely new ones. So we're talking about data coming in over the next year. And as I said, I'm, I'm still using these to look at supernovae hundreds of days after the explosion. Two of these programs were designed to look at exotic types of what is known as a type 1A supernova. So there are, there are lots of different types of supernovae. We're still working very hard to try and connect between those types and the different types of stars that end their lives as each of these. Type 1A supernovae specifically are the explosions of white dwarfs. And uh, these are most famous for being used as standard candles to measure distances to faraway galaxies. And it, it's this type of measurement that back in the, the end of the 90s led to the discovery that the expansion of the universe was actually accelerating. And something had to be causing that 
and that's where dark energy was born. Type 1a supernovae are crucial for cosmology, but as I said, we still don't quite understand where they come from. There are the explosions of white dwarfs, but white dwarfs are, are inherently stable. You need to do something to them to get them to blow up. We think they, there's a companion star, but we're not sure what that companion star is. Is it a regular star like our sun? Is it a red giant? Is it another white dwarf? We don't know. We've been working on that for decades now. Um, that's the main driver for my science. Two of my programs are to look at three exotic type 1a supernovae and see how they behave at late times, whether they behave similar to normal 1a's or if they do something different. We just don't know. And the other one is to get spectroscopic observations of two bright normal 1a's. Most of my observations so far have been imaging. Well, you know, just like with your smartphone, you take a picture. Uh, but we can also take spectra, where a, a spectrum is the entire light from the event divided into individual wavelengths. We hope to understand some of the physics behind one of the more interesting discoveries we made uh, two years ago. Uh, we found out that about 150 days after the explosion, normal type 1a supernovae suddenly stop declining. Their brightness stays constant for about a year before it once again starts fading away. We're already, we as in the entire astrophysical community, we were already thinking of a UV optical infrared space telescope that will be bigger maybe even than the James Webb and that will begin a completely new era of observations. To find out more about news, events and research from the University of Portsmouth, go to port.ac.uk or follow us at Portsmouth Uni on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs>